You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 178 is Chastity Brown. She grew up in Tennessee, but currently releases music out of Minneapolis, putting out seven solo albums from there since 2007. You're right now hearing Colorado, a 2014 single that was eventually included on her 2017 Silhouette of Sirens album. We'll be discussing the new record, Sing to the Walls, the song Wonderment, then looking to that previous record, Silhouette of Sirens, for Drive Slow, and looking all the way back to her first record, 2007's Do the Best You Can, to talk about its closing track, Many Prayers. We'll conclude by hearing Backseat, the single from the new album. For more information, please see chastitybrownmusic.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. You can support my efforts at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will give you copies of my detailed episode notes that have the lyrics and structures and things for the songs that we cover. Here we go. I will have played a little bit of Colorado. The 2014 single then included on 2017 Silhouette of Sirens as an introduction just to orient folks because that's listed as your most famous, most streamed thing on Spotify. Was that part of a soundtrack or something? Why is that song, why did that pop in particular? Do you even know? I don't know. I'm grateful. I don't know. My buddy and I that wrote it, I think there was like a synergy to it. And there, there's something about it that really draws you in without being too specific. So I think it's a song unlike some of my others where folks can really attach their own story. Mm -hmm. All right. So there's no particular business happening. You just feel like it's just the quality of the song or whatever, you know, whatever happened. I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. Okay. Well, let's get very quickly to the new thing. So it's been five years since your last full album. I saw you were releasing some singles kind of in between. Sing to the Walls. Can you say a little bit about where you are now before we talk about Wonderment in particular? I think because of the pandemic or throughout the pandemic, finally developed my own way of clocking in, truly putting in the hours for writing. And for seven years before the pandemic, I toured so much. It was like always fleeting moments of writing. And this was like the first time of just endless time. And so I took delight in that, creating a baseline. And letting that maybe be the only thing that I created in eight hours was like a solid, cool. And this is pretty much just you and a a drummer, right? In part, because of COVID, I was creating everything on my own and then ended up with both halves of the record, created it. Part of it with Brady Blade, who assembled a whole amazing caliber of musicians in Stockholm. And then the other part really kind of tit for tat with my drummer in Minneapolis, Greg Schutte. So I could assemble my arrangements, pass it to him to play drums on, and then we could arrange together. All right, so we're going to hear Wonderment, the opening track, the first single. Was this one of those produced in Minneapolis or was this a Brady Blade one? This is a Brady Blade one. I think Wonderment is about leaning into the mystery. I had a dream I was caught in the rain floating between All around my Could not grace take a hold of anything. Seem like letting go was the only way. Only
This was a little hard for me to get a handle on at first because it's so slow and it's got a really nice groove to it, but it divides up. Like if you want to figure out what does it mean? Well, you have to kind of wait 10 seconds until the next line comes and then wait, like right. you kind of have to piece it together. So it took a few times through and actually it was the groove of it that I associate with Roxy music, like the late seventies, early eighties stuff. Let's have very airy guitars, but a little bit of kind of disco stuff, but I'm sure that they were stealing it from black artists from the seventies or whatever, like that Uh in terms of that overall sound, what was behind this? Because this kind of seems like a new sound palette for this record. You know, you're not in the country rock thing anymore. Right. I can attribute a lot of that to Brady. When we went in for the session again, it was me and drummer vibe into the song. And he plays with a lot of singer songwriters all the way up to Emmylou Harris. So he's the kind of drummer that can serve a song and then also bring it to someplace new, which is where it starts to become on the second verse and then just jamming at the end. The beginning is about fear. The beginning is about the particular fear and knowing that you're not in control and what a humbling moment that is for anyone. And then towards the end of the first verse, you let go. And then what happens? You know, you're not saying that you know all kinds of shit. You're just saying... I don't know if I'll ever know some things. Mm -hmm. There's some sort of like weeping, I think, that happens with that for some people. Or just for me, it was like, okay, let's move on. What else happens in the story? Yeah, I'll point folks to your live version of this, which is absent all the bells and whistles and the organ solo and any guitars. That is, Well, it's just you strumming between mostly between two chords and then the drummer sitting there for a long time and then eventually coming in with a fairly basic beat. So it's all just about your energy, which seems closer to what I was hearing on the oldest albums of yours, where, you know, you'd have these sprawling eight minute songs often that gave you a chance to do some vocal improv and just kind of stretch out with you an acoustic, you know, you didn't even pull out a guitar solo or anything. Was it just about the, having the purity of what the song really is about is not about the groove so much. It's about that dramatic performance 
of these lyrics that have a particular, you know, you can't use the structure really so much to move it forward. It's not like, and now we have the big bridge. It's just the intensity of slowly up and down. And then at one point, you know, obviously when the drums come in or a big change, and then at one point it's sort of right before the solo is like the climax of the song. And let's like actually make the drums peak out a little bit. I think even there. One of my mentors told me something a long time ago that I still obsess over, which is coming to mind as you're talking, Mark, which is that the emotion is in the details. Mm -hmm. Um, I appreciate that you listen to it a number of times. I've had to do that with my favorite novels, start over again and be like, what? I think, for example, Virginia Woolf, there's different characters, there's different internal dialogue of the characters, you get kind of pulled around. And similarly, I think when there's a lot of space, as far as what happens in this song, I make my choices over what feels authentic and what feels like, I'm putting this in parentheses, like what the song needs, Mm -hmm. which is so subjective to a creator. So wonderment as the chronological order of the record, which I'm romantic and I do think about a body of work versus a chunk of singles. Wonderment is setting the intention for the record. Wonderment has a dream state to it. It's like, I don't know all the answers. I don't even know half of the answers to some of the questions that bounce in my mind. And what is it as a human being in this world to lean into that? And again, have some fun. And the message at the end of it, that all that I wonder, I do not know if it will ever show. So what is that saying in terms of you're talking about being able to make sense of things and sort of feeling internally balanced, but I don't know if that'll ever be obvious to anyone. I mean, what is the external versus internal thing that you're trying to say here? I appreciate the question. Wonderment is not a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. If you think about it in that way, there isn't a resolute Thus, the reason for the other songs, like one of the things that I've said a lot about this record is I was really inspired learning about Zora Neale, like the backstory of Zora Neale Hurston when she wrote Their Eyes Are Watching God and how W. Du Bois and Langston Hughes, they really shunned her because she wrote a love story where the center of it's not oppression. It's these two folks falling in love and what life is like around them. So again, going back to wonderment and thinking of it as not a complete sentence and thinking of the other songs as a way to complete what you wonder about, as a way to go further into those wonderings. Yeah, and write about queer love. By queer love, I also just mean I don't even have to ostensibly say any of that. I'm a queer person. And so in effect, that's part of the lens with which I write through. Right. I did an interview for a different podcast on queer video games. Queerness, not as a specific like representation issue, but a lens through which to be experimental, that you're forced by society into sort of reinterpreting and coming up with something from scratch. You can't just take what's been handed down for you. You have to invent something new anyway. Like, this is a very nice song. There's nothing but, like, it's not the residence. It's not scre- like, I'm going to turn your, the, open the doors of perception. You're not trying to seriously subvert anything with this song. It's just creating a space of uniqueness. And I really like, can you say something about your choice in harmonies? I assume this is just you laying her against yourself. And interestingly, in that live version that you managed to get, was it pre-programmable, something such that you could sing and have the harmonies played or were they actually just recorded? I've gotten into using this pedal. I mean, I should get like a freaking sponsorship by them. TC Helicon makes vocal pedals and I use a harmony pedal live. And then sometimes even in the studio, although I do love creating like really specific harmonies, you know, I grew up in the South in the gospel church, like many blues and soul musicians. And we really do learn in this like peripheral consistency. Like when people start singing at the gospel church, you just get in line with harmonies. Like people start moving the harmony, pushing the tone. And I also listen to a lot of Al Green and Aretha for specific styles of soul harmony and how 
the three-part harmony emphasizes really specific parts of the lyrics or sometimes adds to and completes the lyric. I think that's quite fascinating in soul music. So yeah, live, I use this harmony pedal and I can set it to three-part, four-part, high or low. But it does not sing on pitch. It is a true vocal exercise, which I enjoy because I am always trying to grow. Like when I have time off, I still take vocal lessons or a vocal lesson that I can sit with for six months, like how to shape your first note of every song. That's what one of my teachers has me working on. Well, mentioning those soul classics. So when you actually hit the do-do-do-do-do, was there something in particular that you felt you're channeling there or just, we've now transcended what words can express. I must do-do-do here. I had some writing sessions with Dan Wilson, and this was one of the songs that we worked on. And two really small yet powerful things that Dan implemented with Wonderment was I used to, at the beginning of the chorus, strike the first chord, and then I would begin the line, All That I Wonder. And Dan was like, you should do that on the first beat all that I wonder. So that was a significant change for how I'd written the song. But then as we were just kind of like strumming around on it, Dan was like, I want to hear a new note that I haven't heard you sing yet so far in the melody. And he was like, what if we just did a little And so Dan is a, a wizard of a songwriter. And those two little notes gave the final shape to the song. So that's where the doot-doots come from, is Dan Wilson. Interesting. Was this one that you had mixed elsewhere? So like on the uh, about three minutes in, when All That I Wonder comes in for the several time, it now sounds like, oh, it's flanged or something. Like there's a, there's a little yeah. activity with the, you know, where, was that a surprise? <laughs> no. So I recorded it in Stockholm and then the mixing engineer, Chris Bell, who's based in Texas, Brady and he, they worked together for like 20 years. One thing I learned about Brady Blade is he does not like to arrange via technology. He'll arrange in a live setting, a zillion players doing really intricate parts, but he doesn't enjoy the like cut, splice, blah, blah, blah. So Chris Bell already knew that about Brady, but I came to find that. So he and I spent six months. Because I also had recorded 12 songs in total and five of them I kicked off the record, maybe even six of them. But yeah, Chris Bell and I, he's mixed like the last couple of Erykah Badu records, Peter Gabriel. He really took me under his wing and like we dove in on the arranging. So he added some of that kind of like, well, let's get a second song out there. I had picked off of your last record, Silhouette of Sirens, 2017 Drive Slow. Again, an opening track, but this one is like the mega single, which on the nude record is the second song. Here you just immediately, I, w- I wanted to see, I'm surprised this isn't a Dan Wilson thing because this sounds like it, an Adele or it could be Taylor Swift. Like it has that level of immediacy, whereas Wonderment, again, is a more subtle and it's just searching and that, whereas this is just a really nice, <laughs> immediate ballad. Can you say a little about it before we hear it? Drive Slow, I co-wrote with Robert Mulrennan, who also, we talked about Colorado for a second. I co-wrote that song with him. That is also particular to his style of writing, is immediacy with tons of beauty around it. I think he and I were just working in the studio. I wrote what I consider the bridge first, which is kind of what other people would consider the second half of the second verse where it starts to really pick up. That was the first line I wrote and then sat with that for a couple weeks and then started to write the verses. That's never happened to me before where I wrote the loudest part of the song first. Bobby's style of writing when he and I write together, essentially, if you took out my vocal, those are the kind of tracks that he'll send me. Like he does all the guitars, the bass, the drums, pretty little ethereal things. And then I get to sing to something like that. I mean, I can't wait to tell him that you've brought up some of the songs that we've written. 
working up a demo together in terms of the chords and things and then he's orchestrating then you're singing it sounds like the new record is the first one that you're in your lit it said you're a listed producer on the new record that you sort of were able to step up but this one are you a i'm the singer and i write the songs of course you write all the lyrics but you're produced like th- there seems like there was a definite change between your first couple albums which seem very sprawling and very much like this is probably just you or you and your band this is free from any I want to say commercial considerations, but realistically professional interference. Whereas by this time, like this sounds, and I'm not saying this as a criticism, this sounds engineered to be, but you're saying, no, that's just Bobby's taste. Yeah, that is. And that's part of our songwriting collaboration is that he's not a lyricist or a vocalist. I personally think he's a fantastic, amazing singer, but that's just not his zone and And so, yeah, for the past 11, 12 years, that's been our collaboration. Sometimes it is as simple as strumming some chords 
And then other times it'll be like a whole vibe and it's fun. The last two records would be like, I would write half the songs and then the other half, Robert Mulrennan and I would write together. So before the pandemic, I played a concert with the Minnesota Orchestra in which they were playing a few of my songs. One appears on the record now, which is called Like the Sun. And the arrangement that you hear, the arrangement that the orchestra did, hearing that vast individual dynamic range of expressiveness blew my mind Mm -hmm. and also made it seem like it was accessible to me and also a necessity because the beginning of the pandemic was when I was working on all of this. And so it was like, I can't really go over to a guitarist studio or my drummer studio or another organist studio. Let me just see what I can do. I have a very melodic ear. What if I turn that into a horn section? So I just had a lot of, once again, curiosity is a song on the record, but it's also a theme in my life. And this has some of the same arrangement elements of the previous one in that the drums are at various levels. You know, you've just got quarter note kicks for a while, and then eventually the whole kit comes in, some up and down things. Also, this thing of having two acoustic guitars, just one in each ear, be sort of the main bed, which then goes away sometimes and comes back. So is that you and Robert playing on either side or is that you playing both or, you know, how are you? Maybe I'd have to check the liner notes. He could probably answer that. But I will say that we're very much influenced by the way Fleetwood Mac records their acoustics or how Lindsay Buckingham, some of them are dry. Some of them are really almost chorusy, and they're so individualistic. And like have such a better tone than a shaker. At that time, also of creating Drive Slow, Robert and I were really influenced by the sound of the drums of the band, The National. Was this record based around a live unit or this is just based around you and Robert covering most of the parts? On Drive Slow, I mean, it's kind of a duo across the board in a way. But once again, I have a lot of wizards in my life and Bobby is just so creative when it comes to making solid commercial sounds. So for instance, you're doing that piano riff, I assume. No, I bet that's Bobby too. What ends up happening is sometimes we keep the parts that are in the demo or sometimes we may have had the pianist Devon Gray come in and play that on like a grand piano. So sometimes we'll just have it on an upright that's in the house with a crappy microphone, but then we'll redo it. Similarly to the drums, like sometimes they're just easy drummer, which is in the program of recording tools. And then we get a real drummer to redo it, most likely Greg Schuette. Well, I think I noticed that in the first In Wonderment where it sounds like, and maybe even this, where you, if you only have kick drum, mm-hmm. why even bother to play that? Like, whereas then, of course, when the whole kick comes in and you want symbols and some improvisation and and you want fills then uh, yeah of course you have to use a real drummer but like Uh why not just turn on the click track basically to cover that it's probably going to get a better kick drum sound than you could get yourself miking it i think continuity Mm -hmm. and i think as far as like the drummers i play with we want to start at the beginning and go to the end because you never know These guys are so talented. Even though we'll work up the arrangement, something new might happen. This episode of Nakedly Examined Music is sponsored by BeatStars. That is the world's number one digital music marketplace to buy and sell beats. So for you music creators, this allows you to sell your products worldwide. They could be beats, they could be loops, sound kits, maybe vocals, lyrics, graphic design, even video editing. BeatStars has helped pay out over $200 million in music sales to hundreds of thousands of musicians. And BeatStars is also a great place, of course, to buy loops and sounds and things, whether you're an independent artist, a singer, songwriter, rapper, A&R, or or maybe you're a label. There are millions of beats available to you on BeatStars in any genre or style. Dozens of top-charting songs from the past few years were made on BeatStars or created by BeatStars producers, including Lil Nas X's Old Town Road, CJ's Whoopity, Soldier Boy's She Made It Clap, and many more. Beats can be leased on BeatStars at very low rates, sometimes even free, and are available for sale exclusively. If you're interested in writing songs but you don't play an instrument or produce, BeatStars is the perfect place to start. 
BeatStars also offers music distributions to dozens of streaming platforms for only $19.99 a year for unlimited song releases. Go to BeatStars.com slash NEM to get started on BeatStars. BeatStars is free to use for beginners, and you can also get a free one-month premium subscription to open your own virtual music store with the code NEM. This episode is also sponsored by Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. I guarantee there's at least one class on Masterclass that you absolutely are slavering to experience. As a musician, you may be into Herbie Hancock, as I am, or Danny Elfman and his uh, many film scores. Or maybe you're more into Usher or St. Vincent or maybe Metallica or Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. There are right now 23 of those music courses. And if none of those particular names grabs you, I bet David Lynch, Penn and Teller, Spike Lee, Steve Martin, Bob Woodward, Judd Apatow, Helen Mirren, Annie Leibovitz. Maybe you want to watch Bill Clinton talk about inclusive leadership or hate Bill Clinton. How about George W. Bush? Brand new course talking about authentic leadership. I actually took a look at that one and you'll be surprised how much you appreciate the ideas of people who are not currently up for election. There are over 100 classes from a range of these world-class instructors. So come in for the big name that you've always wanted to hear, talk more, and stay for the many, many lessons, whether you're interested in science or business or writing or sports or cooking or any number of other things. These are all cinema quality experiences that you can watch on iOS, on Android, on your desktop, or on your TV through Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, or Roku, or just freaking listen to it is how I usually do it, just like a podcast. And in addition to these lessons, Masterclass classes provide you with downloadable lesson recaps, supplemental materials. There's a community you can engage with. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Something I have not brought up yet, but one of the things that's really distinctive about your voice is your creative pronunciation. I recall listening to Tori Amos and being like, wow, she just swaps out vowels. She just uses different, <laughs> it could be one vowel and she'll switch between three different vowel sounds just as if other people use pitch and volume. And I hear a little bit of that. It's not drive slow, it's drive slow. You know what's interesting? I used to be really self-conscious of that, but it's almost in a, the most literal sense, my influences from that. Mm -hmm. I was born in New Hampshire, all my Irish side of the family. My mom's the second oldest of 12 siblings, but we moved to Tennessee when I was six. But my mom is from Boston, so raised in Tennessee with a New England mother. And then my vowels, like ka, like I don't say car, I say ka. And just certain things, I just have finally accepted it about myself. It's just the culmination of my upbringing. I got to push back on that a little bit because like, sure, what is even happening? Sort of sounds like wood is even happening. The way that's not a regional accent. That's like a musical choice. I mean, maybe it's not a self-conscious choice, but it's just like, this is the way that the sound comes out most melodiously to like round out a few of the vowels or something like that. I don't know. I'd have to listen back. I've never noticed that, but different people notice different things. Well, I thought maybe it was also the blues influence. Like your third album is not on Spotify. So I was like looking on YouTube. So I was listening to this live version of uh, By the Train Tracks, which seems to have like a lot of direct blues stuff. And so it has this backwoods sort of pronunciation that's built into the just, you know, idiomatically. What you're making me think of is like black vernacular, you know, is like there's so many in the minutia of black culture different ways in which we speak and certainly sing. And then again, the Southern and the, like I experience life as a mixed person. So I don't always like think of how others may experience what I create. I'm not trying to make you more self-conscious than you, than you are. Again, it's, it's part of what makes your voice like distinctively you. I figured as somebody who takes voice lessons, you're constantly thinking about like, how do you pronounce certain vowels? Because, you know, I know from taking voice lessons myself that you can't just say E, like you can't hold the E, like you got to 
you, you got you got to curve it somehow. Or you know, this is why the Beatles sang with an American accent, like not just because of their influences, though that's definitely part of it, but just as a matter of when you start singing, it's like you've moved into a different language, like it's a different dialect. That's cool. I think for me, my vocal lessons center around breath work, which will sometimes include vowels. There's so many rules that I break. So I get lessons from a couple different types of vocalists. Some are elders in the traditional five-part harmony suits and others are like more classically trained jazz vocalists. But my main thing is breath work. Was that something you had trouble with originally? Were you getting hoarse at the end of shows? Like I definitely was doing that my entire youth. Like I couldn't talk at the end of a show. For one, I was doing too many vocal warm-ups before the show. That was a big lesson. I now do my vocal warm-ups whenever I take my shower during the day before the show. So my vocal cords are in an optimal environment of heat and moisture. Add some and lemon, then I just, lemon to your shower. Yeah, man. <laughs> but then um, I do remember one of the first times I was ever reviewed, the journalist said that I screamed through my lyric. Whoa. And I was really embarrassed. Now I accept that's what I was up to, whatever. But I did realize that I would like to express what I wanted to scream through the lyric rather than screaming mm -hmm. and express it through a particular melody or a growl instead of just exhausting my voice with the scream. And if I am going to scream, it's like the last big firework. It's not a consistent. You know, you learn from writing that pattern and variation are where power is. But Mark, you might be onto something as far as like, maybe I do have my own vernacular. Maybe you're just pointing out like what's unique. And I appreciate that. Well, I want to use that to move to the third song, which I picked the last song. We have had two first songs, but the last song off of your first album from Do the Best You Can 2007, the song is called Many Prayers, which you were just saying before we started the interview. <laughs> you remember almost nothing about. Do you have any recollection of what this was about or where you were at at this? Not a single one. All right, well, let's just hear it. Then we'll, then we'll talk.
Over five minutes long, but it is not by any means the longest thing on that album or the album after that. But it has in common these sort of sprawling. I mean, this one's a meditation, but many of the songs seem like they're sort of ecstatic musings, like a ritual of some sort. This one in particular, I mean, talking about prayers, but it has this almost Indian because it's like the cello is being the low note of the raga. We get to hear you actually jam on guitar on this. I, we, you know, we haven't really talked about. I've seen you in your, some of your live stuff. You're playing guitar, you're playing banjo, you're playing pretty competent piano. Was acoustic strumming, was that sort of your starting point in terms of most of your writing? Saxophone was my first instrument. Mm-hmm. I think that gave me a sense of melodic ear. Guitar was my second instrument. What's hilarious is like when I moved to Minneapolis like 15 years ago, prior to that, I was living in Knoxville, which is Knoxville and Asheville are kind of hippie, you know, like close to the mountains. And I certainly got in with art major kind of friends in Knoxville and departed from religion at that age and time in my life. And so I carried that with me to Minneapolis. But one of the things is when I played saxophone in Knoxville, I was playing in like a reggae band and like just tooting around. After I recorded a little bit of my stuff in Minneapolis, then I actually sat in with some jazz cats in Minneapolis and was like, oh my God, no, (laughs) like, let me just focus on songwriting. Like I can toot around or play like some diddly doos, but maybe one day I'll play again on my own material, but I'll leave that to the true horn players. But starting at that time, I guess what I remember about many prayers all the way up until now is that I see playing music as a gift to me. And then I get to give the gift to folks who like to hear songs. 
and I still look for some type of spiritual life, and that tends to be in nature. The songs, like many prayers that I write, I have a running list for I don't know how many years of songs that I call spirituals and the light, Mm -hmm. which are just meanders like that, like without even knowing what the song is and just thinking about that intro. What I think is kind of interesting and kind of revealing, I guess, is I heard the poet Nikki Finney when she was accepting her book award for her collection of poems called Head Cut Off and Split. She said that she's always been trying to say the difficult thing beautifully. And if I could borrow that sentiment, many prayers doesn't sound too far off from being connected to wonderment in the sense of trying to acknowledge that there's some sort of mystery to being alive. Maybe it's something I'll always write about in different ways, in different musical palettes. I like this juxtaposed with wonderment because it has certain similarities and they're, they're both, you know, slow burn tunes, but this one has that we're throwing in a new chord. I will also say one other thing about this time is that it wasn't until I was 24 that I was introduced to Van Morrison's Astro Weeks. Ah, I see. I was thinking Nick Drake, but Van Morrison works even better. Yeah. So the first thing that I watched was my friend had the DVD of the band, The Last Waltz. And I was like, you know, on that Van does radio, tone it a little bit. Like he's wasted. And I was like, who's this drunk that this dude sucks. (laughs) And then my buddy was like, listen to this record. Those eight, songs. I mean, that record is such a marker for my growth in life. It seems like I always come back to it when I've realized that my life has changed in some sort of way. Dan was my connection to my Irish heritage. And from him, I went into the Chieftains, the Dubliners, Glenn Hansard, that kind of like ruckus strumming and babbling meaningful babbles. Sure. I was just uh, listening to the water boys last night, which has some, some of that similar early eighties version of that. For sure. There has to be some movement. It can't just, I mean, you could have just recorded for 10 minutes with it being fairly peaceful and having some noodling around, but there's where it's sort of let's pick up the tempo and you know, there's no drums you have to match. We got to raise it, get a little frantic and then we can, we can calm back down. And, you know, the cello even starts moving a little bit during one of those sections. That's definitely me trying to mimic Van. Mm. And like, I think it was a good 10 years of me trying to mimic Van for kind of Irish soulful influence to synthesize itself in me. I just turned 40. I'm just trying to accept myself, like be like, oh, yeah, this is literally who I am, how I am, what I think. I, of course, want to change and grow, but musically, I can hear all these little nuggets of various obsessions with other artists that I've had along the way. Part of my plain spokenness is my love for James Baldwin and Carson McCullers, which I quote all the time because there can be power in simplicity. At least that's my attempt. Now, you mentioned nature being one of the things that you return to. And in here, you know, this could just be gospel language. And I'm not sure when you're talking about in the valley and pastures and things, if that's also sort of, okay, well, that's biblical talk or whether that is, you know, you similarly in wonderment, though you start off singing about what's going on in your head. And I was caught in the red, was floating between sort of just abstract metaphors. But then you get very specific about talking about down West River Parkway behind the old boats, like talking about a location, a specific thing that you could be seeing. How does that relate to the abstract emotional stuff, the describing the scenery? If the scenery sets the mood, like if the first verse in the abstract is setting a mood, kind of disorienting, you know, if you think about it, which is once again, the feeling of not being in control which is not a unique human experience. Like we all have those moments. Again, what I was saying about my mentor, the emotion being in the details, West River Parkway is part of the bike route 
that you take when you cycle around Minneapolis, where you're, you're going to be biking alongside the Mississippi River for a number of miles. And they're the coolest little tucked away boat docks that are not populated with people and really kind of gorgeous. Like the other side of the river, you see St. Paul. There's a bit more of a ravine coming down to the river. I think when you are a resident in Minneapolis, there's these certain places that become a part of your memory of life there and like the way you fall in love with the city. And yeah, so I think those are some of the connections that are in the second verse of Wonderman. Okay, so maybe a different thing is going on in many prayers when you, you've been talking about sort of the long night of the soul and not suffering in vain. And then you're talking, I think, remembering the winters in the valleys on the outskirts of the town where the river was run through. Like this all sounds much more abstract and like referring to folk music or biblical imagery than like what you were talking about, about that very specific memory of Minneapolis. The interesting thing, as you describe those lyrics to me, I know exactly where it is. Oh, okay. So it is a specific. Where I was born in Claremont, New Hampshire, right in the center of town, you have a river that flows down from what New Hampshire calls the White Mountain. Vermont says Green Mountain, but nonetheless, it's still the Appalachian Mountains. And it's a low river and the rocks, it's just so picturesque. And winters there were like freaking four feet of snow. The summer was, you know, it's a mountain town. So small and working class. So as you're saying that, that's the scene of Claremont from the winter to the spring. In both those cases, you say you describe this as setting the scene, but you're bringing this up sort of later in the song. You know, it's not like, and so we set the scene on the winter, you know, the mountain stream. And then you get personal, you know, but you've been referring to poetry and literature as your influences. And like, I've never really gotten super into nature poetry, but it sounds like that's at least, I didn't notice whether there was anything in your canon that really is purely a meditation on nature and using that as opposed to, you know, that can connote something that's in your soul, but as opposed to just like, you know, the songs we've been talking about where the soul action is first and foremost, and maybe you give it a, a geographical background. I think at the point of writing that song, not yet. I do think of Mary Oliver when it comes to like, it's probably only been the last eight years that I've been reading her Pulitzer prize winning, very plain spoken nature author. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just came back from tour in the South and we were in Georgia and North Carolina for like a week. And it was so nice to be reminded how slow life is, but also the way Southerners talk is through story is how they try to relay how something felt. And it takes time, you know, but like time moves slowly. So maybe the way I was writing at that time and probably still even now is how a Southerner tries to say how they feel about something Mm -hmm. and then how that colors the way you see the things around you. Say a little bit more about, I'm just curious about the geographic move and that most of your career has been in Minneapolis, but you're coming with Southern influences. And I know Minneapolis has a thriving, you know, country rocks. Like I'm in Madison, Wisconsin now, and maybe most musicians that I run into here, at least plenty of them are very into Southern or even Irish, like just these random country pastoral, something that is not directly related to our specific geography was there any resistance or even just no i'm a black woman doing country rock or you're being pushed i've just some of my other guests have talked about specifically like oh they always just try to call me soul or blues or something because do you regard that as they seem to treasure you there you've been featured on enough at least looking at youtube festivals and things like that has that been a hospitable home for the kind of music that you try to create here There's a number of things to touch on in your question. Mm -hmm. Having just returned from the South with my drummer, who's from Milwaukee, when we were in Georgia, I was like back near the mountains where I had lived in Knoxville. I love the Appalachian Mountains. So I didn't think about it. But he was like, Chess, I'm starting to feel claustrophobic. You can't see the horizon like you can in the Midwest. And I was like, holy crap. I've never thought about that. It was really distinct to him. Like he was asking 
other people who live there, do you ever just want to see the sunset? Like, <laughs> and then of course, like once we got north of Chicago, we were like, okay, okay. So I found that to be pretty interesting as far as place and how, once again, how one feels. I do love a good tree immersion. I think when it comes to genre, when I was living in Knoxville, there were two bands that were huge. This kind of indie rock band called Dixie Dirt, very like Cat Power-esque. Sure. And then there was this other band, pretty folky, but amazing lyrics and melodies called the Everybody Fields. And then there was other music and stuff. But as I was starting to sing out for the first time, I didn't really fit in those categories. Were you playing folk clubs? Yeah, like folk or rock. Sure. or. And so when I moved to Minneapolis, for example, I had never heard of The Replacements oh. or Husker Du. I find that really interesting as an influence on the history of music in the city. And then learning even more about Jimmy Jam Records and Janet making albums there, Prince wanting to live there. And then there's just such a variety, even though it's kind of a smaller city. And it gave me space to either become myself or accept who I was becoming. I don't know. It, that's, what is it, half a dozen? In your list of, of Irish bands that you hadn't mentioned, the Pogues, which that was my way into that, which that is the punk thing. It is the Husker Du thing, basically, but just with Irish instruments or, you know, yep. late 70s punk anyway, whatever, whatever is being channeled through that. So, you know, and that goes with discovering that also kind of the same aging in college and like starting to scream more of my lyrics. And it's a definite liberating step. And for genre, I feel a part of the Americana genre. Mm -hmm. I think that's a reasonable umbrella, but I want to push it a little bit further as the daughter of a blues musician. Like, I think it's time to redefine the blues. I think that with acknowledging what our elders have taught us, there's so many Black Southern artists, including myself, who are doing different versions of the genre of root soul. So I'm curious about us. Once again, language is just an attempt to describe a feeling or to define something. So I'm cool with whatever folks want, whatever category I myself I think new blues is cool. Well, sure. If So if Colorado is the thing that, you know, people lashed onto, which it seems definitely in that category or, or alt country or whatever, but, you know, Wonderment or a lot of the new album has very little to do with that. So let's leave folks with the reason single from the new album, Backseat. It's the second track off the album. And this is, yeah. you know, sort of the equivalent of the Drive Slow, but even more, you know, it's got syntho drums. It's got, you know... Even more poppy. And I hope this does something for you that you can get some national traction or I, I don't know what counts as musical oh, success in terms of airplay in this, but this is a catchy enough song. <laughs> it should do it. Do you have a, a couple words to say about before we let you go here? You know, Backseat, I wrote with Jordan Lawhead and Robert Mulrennan. It's very much the culmination. You know, the story in and of itself brings you um, the back roads of West Tennessee to being stuck in traffic in LA. You're very much set in a scene. I think it's a fun roller skating song. I <laughs> like sure. if I was a more confident roller skater, like that's how I would. <laughs> and I think the choice, like sonically, some of the feedback I got was like, oh, this can't be blues because it has an 808 kick drum. Why not? Once again, like as the daughter of a blues musician, I think my father, were he still alive, would be interested in me doing what I've learned from him in new ways. Yeah, let's put an 808 on that. It's still the blues, <laughs> you know, and I hope people catch that vibe. And I appreciate your time. I appreciate the interview, Mark. Such a pleasure to talk to you. And let's say goodbye. Here's Backseat. Rolled in, we were just cruising down the strip 
Moving by the click, they were talking about what they don't know. Young, dumb, and busted, and all of us was trusting. Wings we have it carry us, something unpredictable. Sun was going, going down. Got the windows open, as cruise around. Sun was going, going down. Got the windows open, and you were in the back seat. I was in front, in the middle of our dreams. Were probable calls, probably we didn't know what's ahead of us. Never felt so free, never felt so. I never felt so. Thanks so much to Chastity. Y'all know my penchant for talking to people who have ideas. And man, Chastity has a lot of ideas here, which is perhaps a rare combination with such slick, radio-ready, nice-sounding tunes. I should mention she brought up Dan Wilson that she co-wrote Wonderment with, along with uh, Robert Mulrennan on that tune that she mentioned for some of the other tunes. Dan Wilson is, of course, the brother of Matt Wilson, who I had on this show but who then went on to write and record Closing Time and then has since done co-writing for huge names like the big Adele singles. So I think that says something about chastity and her potential for pop stardom. We can only hope you can help that happen. Go to Chastity Brown Music and go listen to her stuff. Go buy her records. I know that's a crazy idea at this point, but spending money on artists you want to encourage is nice as is spending money on podcasts you want to encourage. If you want to become a supporter of this podcast, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Even a small per episode contribution really shows that you want this to keep happening. I welcome your suggestions for guests. Maybe volunteer yourself as a guest. You can email me, mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure, perhaps you are listening to this on the Partially Examined Life feed. Many people do. That is our podcast network. But make sure you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed so that you're getting these episodes promptly. 
You're getting all the episodes. I would also appreciate once you are subscribed to the Nakedly Examined Music feed to go to that page on Apple Podcasts, leave a nice rating and review. It really helps get the show more exposure. So what is next in this ongoing adventure? Why Mike Lindup from the band Level 42 is my next guest. Then I just talked to a famous star of stage and screen, Rebecca Pigeon. She has done several starring roles in films by David Mamet, who is her husband, and also records pretty eclectic, folky, but sometimes jazzy and very Peter Gabriel-influenced records, like a dozen of them. So please come back for that. I hope you're doing well as the summer winds down or whenever you are listening to this. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linton-Meyer signing off. I was driving through the mountains of Colorado I'm good to get to get to a beat at a mall When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.